you know, I've been there, I've had this great career, and this is what I would do today. Been there, do this. What would be your message to yourself of 10, 15, 20 years ago? Is relax. <laughs> Elvin Toffler said, the less you need something, the more power you have. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Been There, Do This podcast. In every episode, we will hear the stories of leaders who have found a way to integrate their passion into a better way to do business. I'm your host, Josh Joel, business and employment lawyer at Stanton Law. I'm so excited to introduce you to our Been There, Do This sponsor, Stanton Law. Since November 2011, Stanton Law has sought to serve, advise, and guide clients of all sizes in a practical and efficient way. Now in its second decade, Stanton Law continues to counsel individuals and companies on legal issues surrounding every scope of business. Whether you're an entrepreneur, small business owner, or the CEO of a major organization, if you are ready to take your company to the next level, let Stanton Law provide business solutions to minimize your legal problems by visiting stantonlawllc.com. That's stantonlawllc.com. On today's podcast, I have with me Nadja Bilchik, who is a global speaker, author, and communication skills trainer. She has anchored for Mnet TV in South Africa, CNN Airport Network, and hosted various shows on CNN International. She has also reported for CNN Weekend Morning Passport. And, kind of scary, she has interviewed world-renowned figures such and celebrities like Nelson Mandela, Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, Matt Damon, and many more. And apparently she thinks that I am as good enough interviewer to interview her uh, after she has interviewed such incredible celebrities and I'm sure has incredible stories to tell. And so I want to welcome uh, Nadja to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Josh. And you have all the makings of a fabulous interviewer because you are curious and you do your homework. There you go. And, uh, and I only bring people on my podcast to give me wonderful compliments from the outset. <laughs> so, Nadja, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your story, and uh, obviously, you've got a pretty, pretty celebrated career behind you, and now you're bringing that to the corporate world and businesses, uh, helping them train themselves in communications and just being better at the communications field. So, but let's go back to the beginning. One little detail that I neglected to share in the beginning is that we also share some family origin history. Nadja is also a distant cousin of mine, and uh, and we our families both go back to South Africa. And if those of us who are not familiar with the wonderful and refined South African accent, um, it's it's amazing. So uh, I want to hear a little bit more and the listeners about your immigrant story and uh, how you got into media in South Africa and eventually came over to the United States. So, Josh, I actually studied drama and English at UCT, the University of Cape Town, and always wanted to be an actress. And I was being interviewed for a movie that I did, and I was sitting there being interviewed, and I thought I would so much rather be the interviewer than be interviewed. And just as I was thinking that during that period, Mnet Television was launching in South Africa, and they said they were looking for presenters And I auditioned and I got in and I literally auditioned. I think it was in maybe October. We had a little bit of training. And by November, December, I was on air. And it was not as established, sophisticated television industry as it is in the United States. I mean, I think I was eight or nine when we first got television. Mm. We used to sit watching the test pattern and then it was the Brady Bunch. So the opportunity was there. And I started with Mnet in South Africa 
in around 1989. Just for those of you who are not familiar with the South African media scene, what is MNET? So MNET was, at that point, the only cable entertainment channel. There was no other but MNET. And, you know, since then, there's so many other channels. But at the time, you had a choice between watching the local South African broadcasting, SABC, or MNET. So it was a really big deal. And having that platform, we became incredibly famous. I mean, those of us who worked as MNET, as anchors, presenters, we were household names, So much so that when my now 31-year-old daughter was born, I was on the front page of the Sunday Times. Wow. I remember doing a training because I've always spoken and trained congruently to having a a television career. And I was doing a program for BMW, and I said, don't you want me to tell you what I'm going to do with your staff? And they said, no, don't worry. We've seen you on TV. So to leave that established career, that visibility and being a household name, and then coming to Atlanta in 1997 and starting again, that was what was so difficult. What what prompted you to leave and start again? So a variety of things. My husband actually got a job offer in Atlanta. He had watched the Olympics in Atlanta, so he thought Atlanta was a good place to be. And the crime in Johannesburg was pretty, pretty dire. Now, I always preface it with Nelson Mandela was now president. He became president in 1994. He was released from prison at the beginning of 1990. So politically, we were now the rainbow nation, no longer the pariahs of the world. I always tell people I'm so privileged to have lived through that peaceful, democratic change. But Johannesburg was becoming very difficult to live in. And my husband, pre-release of Mandela, had actually applied for our green cards in the lottery. So we won our green cards in the lottery. And if you didn't take it up within a certain time, you would lose it. So we always thought, you know, we can always come back, but it's worth taking this opportunity. So that was it. I have to tell you, I was very ambivalent about it Mm. because I had such an established career and my parents lived there and family. And I had what I call in my networking book, an organic network. Mm -hmm. So starting again was incredibly difficult. You know, it reminds me, I was just speaking to my own parents about my grandparents when they made the leap of faith to leave Johannesburg after they retired and come to the United States. And while you share the language, the culture and the network, it's actually people don't appreciate those who immigrate from other English speaking countries, how difficult that can actually be. So that was a pretty big leap of faith at a time when it sounds like you were at the pinnacle of your career. Absolutely. And I think your grandparents came, what, Josh, in their, they must have been 70s. Yes. Yeah. So even harder. I was in my early 30s. My husband was in his early 40s. And I th- it was in terms of children, my children were six and three at the time. So it was easy in terms of school. And we were so lucky because we came into this remarkable South African Jewish community mm-hmm. that was so embracing. But for me, having left at that point in my career and started again, took a lot of readaption, resilience, reinventing. And that's something I speak about a lot today. Yeah. And I want to get into that because that's incredibly powerful. But before I do, you mentioned Nelson Mandela and what an inspiring human being. And you had the opportunity to meet him 
and to interview him. What was that like? Unquantifiably remarkable. I was so fortunate because in 97, I actually got to open the SOS Children's Villages in Cape Town with Mandela. He was the guest of honor and I was the master of ceremonies. And just being with him, and I think as the years go on and we see what's going on in the world right now, more and more do you appreciate the brilliance of the leadership of Mandela. Not saying he was perfect because very few leaders are, but the ability to bring a divisive group of people together in the way that he did. And, you know, many people don't fully understand the background that when he was released, it wasn't absolutely certain that he was the one who would become the president. There were people who were much more radical than him and in not going too much into history, but Chris Harney, who was also a very powerful anti-apartheid activist, was murdered. And at that point, the country could have dissolved into a civil war. And because of Mandela's rhetoric of this rainbow nation and everyone's welcome, we have the relatively peaceful democracy that is South Africa today. Not perfect, and I keep reiterating that, lots of issues with corruption and various other things. But in terms of when we look at the world and we look at what's going on in Russia or Ukraine or even in America today, how divisive it is, having a leader like Mandela was a miraculous thing. Was he as gentle in person as his persona is is perceived? I mean, he seems like a very so gentle wonderful. but forceful That's personality. That's so interesting you say that. Very tall, hmm. quite, you know, measured in his tone, remarkably tall. But my one moment where I'm introducing him and, and he turns around and says, me, very good. That was very good. You know, oh. I also had an opportunity to spend time with him at the Greek Businessman of the Year because his lawyer, George Bezos, was Greek. Mm -hmm. So the Greek community honored him and invited me once again to be the master of ceremonies. And I can still say anybody speaks any Greek. And there was Mandela. So uh, just extraordinarily honored to have met him many, many times and know his children and know his grandchildren and have really just an insight into the real human being. So as evident by everything you just discussed, you're at the top of your game, at the top of your career. You're a household Perfect. name. You're interviewing the, the president of the country <laughs> who is one of the most world-renowned leaders. Forget all the celebrities because I don't really care about that. I care about inspi Global inspiring icon. leaders. And for whatever reason, because of the uncertainty and the crime and your personal life, you take this big leap of faith and you come to the United States. And I and what happens next? I mean, you're, you're a nobody in the United States. And that is so true. You know, in networking, I talk about you arrive and you don't have that. And I said it earlier, that organic network. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate because the head of CNN Center Security knew the head of Mnet Television Security. Wow. So we're talking about the end of 1997. Some of the people listening may not even know what a VHS tape is, but <laughs> I had all my anchoring and interviews on a VHS demo tape. And I called Dwight Ellis, who was then the head of CNN Security. I said, Dwight, the head of Mnet Security gave me your number. He says, yes, Nadia, we've been waiting for you. 
well, if you know anything about American broadcasting, nobody's waiting for you. But I did drive over to CNN Center with my friend's daughter because I did not know the way. So Narissa Bonet, if you are listening, thank you for that. So she drove me and we go to CNN Center and I hand Dwight Ellis a VHS demo tape. Mm. So what's the lesson here, Josh? You just never know, right? The head of security took my tapes and delivered them to CNN International and to CNN Domestic and to CNN Airport Network. And I got a call from the CNN Airport Network from that demo tape. And Steve Shippo had said, Nadia, will you come in for an audition? Mm. And I did. And so that was about September, October. And once again, by December, I was anchoring overnights for the CNN Airport Network. Wow. So uh, that's just an amazing thing because like you said, you just never know. Here you are at the top of the top of society, the top of your game and the head, of, the head of security, which a lot of people, and I don't know if this is your story, might ignore such a person. This is not an important well, exactly. person. And they find you this gig in the United States when you come and open up your network. So what was it about you that made that head of security in South Africa want to go out to bat for you? That's... That is so foundational to all relationship building. It's really honoring everyone you ever meet. One of the things I talk about that stops us for networking is we judge or we misunderstand. And I'm hardly saying anything revelationary, but do we treat everyone in our lives with respect? And do we greet them? And do we acknowledge them? And do we see them? You know, there's a Zulu greeting, Josh, that I love. It says sawabona. And sawabona means I see you. Mm. And as human beings, I mean, you know, and you do this so well, and I've watched you interact, is you see people. People want to be seen. And just having that relationship with him, and I'll never forget when I was leaving because it made news. Nadia Bilchik leaves to go to Atlanta. And by the way, I was told by Mnet that if I came back within the year, I could still have my job back. And because of my relationships dealing, he just said, Nadia, we're so sorry to lose you, but I've got a friend in Atlanta. So, and that's been something I've always thought about. You just never know, right? You just never know where the next opportunity, contact, resource comes from. And not being dismissive of everyone around you. And you hear this from people like Clint Eastwood, People who work with him will say he treats and honors his crew, everybody with dignity. Mm -hmm. Or great performers, you know, the um, Anthony Hopkins of this world that I've had the pleasure of interviewing. He, when you walk into that interview room, he talks to you, he looks at you, he sees you. I've interviewed some big stars who are so arrogant that you are absolutely invisible to them. So I think that point about I see you, you're not invisible is so foundational to all of us and just a reminder of how important that is. And, you know, Maya Angelou famously said people don't remember exactly what you say, but they always remember the way you make them feel. Feel. Unbelievable. So speaking of feelings... Let's talk about courage. I imagine it takes a, a lot of courage to to hand in your resignation in the industry in South Africa and come to the United States with 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 nothing. So, and and I'm sure some people probably had some things to say about that and and judgments. And how how did that oh feel? Oh my gosh, it's so interesting you say that. You know, um, courage or madness. 
So in South Africa, when I worked at Mnet, we had a hair sponsor. It was Carlton Hair. So imagine this. Anytime you were on air, your hair got done, you got given shampoo, it got cut, colored, and we had truers give us clothes. So I never had to ever pay for hair or clothes. Mm. And I'll never forget the head of Carlton Hair when I said to him, I'm going to America. And it's so, you know, you remember these moments. And he looked at me and he said, why? Here you are somebody. There you are going to be nobody. Wow. <laughs> Those powerful moments. So uh, if it's okay, I would like to ask you more on a more personal level, and then we can talk a little bit more about how you've, you know, what's gone on since then. But I imagine on a personal level, that's not easy to go from somebody to nobody. How did you, again, if, if you're willing to, to talk about it, yes, how did you something. become something? Well, it's interesting because what happens, and I am sure that every single person who's listening to this has gone through some radical change in their lives in some way. That's what you start to realize. You start to realize whether it's your children leaving home and suddenly being an empty nester or a divorce or parents passing on or people go through change. What I didn't realize at 32 years old, because I thought this was so devastating, it felt like a loss. It's like a part of you has died. Well, a part of you has, right? But what I learned to do was, first of all, have deep empathy for people who were going through change. One of the first talks I ever did, I was asked at that point, you know, please, Nadia, will you, we know you were on television, will you give a talk to this group of women? And I spoke about change. And as you listen to people, everybody goes through change. So what do you do if you go through change and it feels like such deep loss, right? Because some change is a gain. Some change feels absolutely devastating. And I will tell you, for the first couple of years, I found it excruciating because you, I kept comparing the world to each other, you know, being this very high profile person in South Africa and starting again. But what I learned over the years was to really look inwards, develop the skill, and not be so reliant on the external. And we all do it in some way or another, don't we? We all want the external affirmation. We all want to be applauded. But what it forced me to do was obviously focus on gratitude. You know the famous saying, it is not joy that makes us grateful, but gratitude that makes us joyful. Mm -hmm. Focus on having two small children at the time and, and having a supportive, loving husband. So I learned to do that a whole lot more and not get into victim mode. I will tell you, Josh, there was once when I first came here and I didn't have the insight that I've got now. That comes through the wisdom of the journey. And I'm working for a woman and she says, Nadia, you are extremely talented and I really like, you know, what you're doing. She says, but I'm finding it very difficult to work with you because you are in too much pain. And that's a victim mentality. That's saying, you know, I've come from another country and I was so famous there and I had such access there and I'm doing overnight shifts for the airport network. Once she said that to me and I, I really... I'm grateful she did. I still hate her, but I thank her <laughs> because uh, I say that. Um, don't really hate her. I just, at the time, was very resentful. It shocked me into going, okay, you can go back. Do you really want to go back? What is it going to take for you to not be a victim? 
And, you know, I started listening to a lot of really good people, whether it was Tony Robbins, who really, he's got some very, very good sage advice. I call yeah. it universal wisdom. Yeah. Eckhart Tolle, you don't like the situation you're in. You have the privilege of three things. You can change it, you can get out of it, or you can accept it. Yeah. Right? That's all of us. Now, I'm not saying that a woman in Saudi Arabia or right now in Afghanistan has a choice like that. But we have choices. And to appreciate the privilege of, I can change it, I can get out of it, I can accept it. Hmm. So I can go back. But at that point, my children were entrenched in school. And I have had opportunities here. I mean, interviewing for six, seven years, I interviewed famous, famous A-list actors for a South African television show. Right. I got to interview Meryl Streep and Jennifer um, Jennifer Lopez. And people always ask me, is George Clooney really so sexy? But I got access to things that I wouldn't have in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And then I started to look at it differently. And by doing that and working at an international global news network like CNN and the access and what it taught me. And I started to shift how I thought about things. Mm -hmm. And isn't that the truth of everything? Because that's what you're trying to do on this podcast and you're doing it so well is you're talking to people and say, how how do we look at the world differently? And that's what I started to do. And once I started to do that, I accepted I am missing that but look what I do have. Right. Focusing on what you've got as opposed to what you're missing doesn't take away what you're missing. So important question, very important question. Is George Clooney really that sexy? <laughs> George Clooney is not only really so attractive. I have to say, very attractive man, tall. The journalists were literally hyperventilating. <laughs> now, you have to understand that in my early 30s, I took myself very seriously. So I was not going to be one of them. But he was very nice. And Mm. that's what I remember, you know. And as his career has continued to evolve, what I remember is standing at the coffee station with him in the Universal lot and him just being so gracious and kind and seeing people. Mm -hmm. And I'll say even Jennifer Lopez, interesting enough, it was the same movie that I interviewed them both for. And she wasn't as big a star as she is now. And um, I was doing a stand-up outside her caravan, and she walked on. She said, but you never mentioned me. I said, I'm so excited here to be doing a movie, talking to George Clooney. And she said, but you didn't say me. (laughs) I just watched her documentary, by the way, on Netflix, which is also a really good documentary about resilience and fortitude. Mm -hmm. And if anything I've learned over these years is focus on the positive, resilience and fortitude, we are so privileged. Try not to be in victim mode. I know easier said than done. But again, the brain has so much neuroplasticity and we practice certain things. And if we practice them time and time again, they become entrenched. Yeah. So so let's let's go back and talk a little bit more about the wisdom of the journey. I love that line that you said uh, before. And so here you are, you show up in the United States and on a professional level, What were some of the bigger challenges that you had uh, breaking into and being a part of the American media scene and culture as opposed to where you came from? Well, firstly, Johannesburg, where (laughs) I had spent my life, is very – it's very progressive. It's very – it's edgy. 
Mm-hmm. If I can say that, and there's, it's very cosmopolitan. Interesting. When I first came to Atlanta, it wasn't as cosmopolitan. You know, we had this very eclectic, very diverse group of friends, so I found that difficult. But CNN, remember that at the time there was CNN International, and I'm so grateful for that because there were people from all over the world. And I was hosting some shows for International at the time, show buzzing around the world and various others. And luckily, I had people who came from different backgrounds. And so for that, I'm so grateful to CNN. Also, there were people who had been top of their game. They'd been the top producer, the primetime anchor, and they'd all come to America and found themselves in the same place. I will say for, I did anchor one or two HLNs, which is our headline news. And I remember, of course, the accent. You know, they really wanted middle America accent for American television. Right. Although when I did the weekend morning passports, it didn't matter too much. You know, I obviously had to adapt a little bit. But there's a certain type. And maybe it's changing somewhat. But certainly if you watch domestic television, whether it's CNN or ABC, you very seldom find a primetime anchor with an accent. Mm-hmm. You might find a contributor. or And that was something, you know, you're not going to find someone with my accent on WSB local TV here. Just right. is. Yeah. And so did you have to put on a, a different accent? or? No, it's very hard. You ask that. And we always think about Charlize Theron, right? She was 19 or 18 and she had this heavy Afrikaans accent. Remember her? Yeah. Charlize? Yeah. <laughs> and now she's got this beautiful American accent and she even does her interviews in perfect American accent, which is so fascinating because sometimes you'll get Nicole Kidman who does an interview and she's Australian, flat as can be, but then she started playing this American character. I was 32 when I came. It is very difficult for me to broadcast or speak in an accent. I could act in an accent. I can tell you about the Grand Park Farmers Market, and I can put on an American accent. But there's something about broadcasting, or I speak a lot, putting on an accent, I might use certain words. I don't talk about water. I talk about water. And (laughs) you know from your parents, you have to Americanize certain things. That's the way it goes. It's interesting because when I speak to a South African, I don't even hear a South African accent. That's funny because I grew up with South African accent. And now uh, for the average American, especially 20 years ago, before the age of Trevor Noah, uh, who, you know, now people are used to hearing uh, a South African accent, which is a unique accent on Absolutely. on television. And I mean, he, exactly. And he has, and he'll sometimes adapt slightly. And I'm always wondering when Trevor Noah does put on a certain accent, does do people get it? Because there's certain things that are very unique to a culture. Or, but it also just shows, Trevor Noah, doesn't he, that if you are likable. I mean, I don't know if you watched him recently at the uh, Washington, the White House awards dinner. He was superb. Mm -hmm. He was playful and he was, he, he joked, but without going really below the belt. And he did it in a very charming way. He's charming. He's well, South Africans generally are very charming in my view. (laughs) Oh, yes. So, you know, you're, so you're on, on the news in the United States and you mentioned before that, that being on broadcast news as opposed to acting, you're 
it sounds like you have to be your more of your real self. You can't put on uh, no. a show. And so let, let's no. let's transition a little bit into public speaking because this is what you do now. And uh, and a lot I know I've watched your TED talks. I've watched some of your other podcasts and other things. And one thing that I seem to have garnered from what you speak about is a lot of authenticity and realness. And we typically view, and I've got a preconceived notion that you're shattering for me, that uh, television news anchors and TV is just a bunch of fake spotlights, right? And it's about putting on a show. You know, you watch Fox News today, you watch CNN today, you know, it's essentially, or MSNBC, it essentially seems like a choreographed show with a lot of makeup and a lot of hairspray and, you know, the perfect tie and everything like that. And yet here is a TV news anchor, someone who's a producer, someone involved in in, in a career of, uh, of television and what you're saying is authenticity. So let, let's talk a little bit about about how that came about and your approach to connecting to your audience and and uh, and public speaking generally. You have to the really great anchors. Even if you okay, let's be quite neutral. Let's take David Muir on ABC. If we're looking at, I don't know if, if you've watched him or the Barbara Walters mm-hmm. or. So David, I'll just talk about David as a because we won't go into either Fox or CNN, and there's some excellent <laughs> people on on CNN as well, and Fox. I mean, I'm not, you know, we've got a broad broad variety of people here, but people who you feel are really talking to you. Look, the nature of how we read news and how we tell news is not a conversation; it's a tell. But if you look at Anderson Cooper when he's reading there's really a genuine aspect to how he's reading. So you can't put on forever because you will be transparent. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll see somebody and I'll just know that they're not comfortable doing it. It's a level of comfort. And it's interesting because I wrote my second book was, well, I did Own Your Network. Then I did Small Changes, Big Impact. And then I, with the South African author, Laurie Mullen and I, we wrote Own Your Space. And the concept of owning your space is just giving yourself permission to be the person there. But we do respond to people on television in our living rooms who, who we believe, who we like, who we trust. There's something about that because it's such an intimate medium in a way. And I'm not taking away that there is an entertainment quality or a show quality that's absolutely true. But I think it's true that the, that the very successful anchors are the ones that we perceive as being more real, even if we don't like their politics or don't like their positions. I mean, for me, for example, I don't want to name names, but you think about Megyn Kelly, you might not like everything she says, but she does come across as someone who's genuine. She's very interesting because... I remember watching, we're not going to get into politics, but when Megyn Kelly was, I was watching her say that Santa Claus, of course he's white, she went, um, because he's European. Anyway, I remember watching that absolutely horrified, just horrified and thinking, how could she? Subsequently, I've been listening to and watching her. She's very skilled. Mm -hmm. She's very skilled. I am still astounded that she didn't have what we call, and I teach this in communication, a third eye. So third eye is, yes, I'm talking to Joshua Joel. But I'm not just talking to you. I'm observing myself talking to you and making sure that I don't say anything too contentious. I am aware that we have a broad audience of Republicans and Democrats, extreme right, extreme left. I don't want to alienate anybody. 
I am aware, I am conscious. I just was astounded that with her experience and her knowledge that she didn't have a third eye to think in that moment, am I going to say that? And and I think that's for every single person who's listening is, and it's something I do a lot around personal branding. Everything you do and say communicates. So here I am talking to Josh Joel on a podcast that you may have five people, you may have 50 people, you might have 500 people. But I'm going to be as conscious about what I say to you as if I was live on television, on CNN, on broadcast television. Why? Because in an age of social media, everything is accessible and everything communicates who you are. Yeah. And that's all of our lesson. Don't believe that if you work for X company, but I'm tweeting this or I'm sending this in my own capacity. There is no own capacity. Yep. And we all, I mean, here you are, you work for a law firm and you have to be very conscious that everything you do and say, even though you're doing this in your personal capacity, you are still a member of a larger group. Yeah. And again, you're, you're talking to an employment lawyer and we see this all, we see this all the time. You know, I've told, I had a, yeah. this conversation with a client just in this past week. You know, you have to assume that when you're working, for example, on your work computer, that there's an, that your work is omnipotent, you know, that, that everybody can see and know what you're doing and everything you do reflects, even if it's a private message on Facebook, I've had clients come to me, you know, to talk about what do they do about a private message that, that someone sent on Facebook. And they thought that, that, that private message was private. And the reality is that everything we say and everything we do, it, it is seeable and knowable. And, uh, and we have to be very, very careful, especially in the workplace. But let me ask you a very basic question because there's a lot of nuggets here that I think is are very applicable to the corporate world, to the business world, and we're starting to touch on those now. But before we even get there, why is it important for a business owner, an entrepreneur, a CEO, an HR director, uh, someone in the C-suite in any business to know communication and no public speaking? It is so foundational because in a world of overload and competition, you have to be able to cut through the clutter. And the only way you can cut through the clutter is by communicating better, more masterfully than anyone else. It's absolutely foundational. Understanding communication is critical whether you are a manager managing others, whether you are the leader, whether you are an associate, an employee, your ability to communicate masterfully not only helps accelerate execution, but it's critical for conflict resolution. I mean, you know better than anyone else in the work you do what conflict is caused by lack of communication or poor communication and what it costs a company. In the absence of proper communication, people come to their own conclusions. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. In the absence of proper communication, people come to their own conclusions and people make assumptions and that causes all kinds of delays and waste of time. That's one area of foundational communication, but your ability to be a good presenter of information, whatever area you're in, is so critical to career acceleration because I look at a career as threefold. There's performance, image, and exposure, right? Harvey Coleman came up with the pie, performance, image, and exposure. You can be brilliant at what you do. You can be technically capable. You can be the most genius data analyst in the world. If you can't articulate ideas well, 
or brings solutions to problems in a way that is clear and concise, you're never perceived as a leader. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's a foundational skill. And the thing is, it can be taught. I work with a lot of people, both in terms of one-on-one coaching and groups, people who are good enough at what they do, but they want to take their careers to the next level. And there's often a gap between my ability to even being in a meeting and asking a question and their skill and their things that can be taught. So you, you mentioned before, it's interesting because you consider yourself a communication skills trainer. And a lot of people would conflate that with public speaking. And what I'm hearing from you is not public speaking. I'm hearing communication, learning how to it's communicate. So what's the difference? When I do presentation skills classes, I call them maximize your presence and presentation skills. So if I define presence as your ability to engage, to communicate, to positively persuade and influence, that's important in every interaction. And your presentation skills are part of that. Your presentation skills are part of your overall mastery in communication. Because, Josh, you can be the most articulate orator if you lack listening skills, if you lack empathy, it doesn't matter how great a speaker you are. Speaking is an element, but it all falls under the umbrella of communication mastery. Is the message I am sending going to be received in the way that I intended it to? And do I have the skill to understand what that means and is? And communication is not, as you just mentioned, it's not just speaking. It's also listening. Communication is a, is a, a two-way street. And so when we talk about communication uh-huh. skills, that includes empathy and listening, is that correct? You know, people talk about presence and you reference the TEDx talk that I did. And I say, you know, we think of presence as you coming across powerfully and with confidence and charisma, but presence is also how you make other people and people feel. And listening is so foundational to that. I mean, I'm so impressed with you, I have to say, because I do get interviewed a lot and you are listening and you're picking up on things that I'm saying and you're not making about you, you're making it about me. Funny enough, I watch a lot of television presenters, anchors, and sometimes they ask questions that are so long and they also make the interview about them, not the person they're interviewing. And I know for me, because I do a lot of interviewing, there is a tendency to want to do that, but it's a skill and you've definitely mastered that. Well, thank you. That's very nice to hear, especially from an expert. When when we talk about, again, going out to the question of business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, folks who are trying to hone in on their communication skills and really improve and excel at communication for the reasons you mentioned before, without giving away all of the secret sauce, go watch the, te- the TEDx talk for that one which we could drop in the in the show notes, a, a link to that if you'd like. What are, what are the things, the basic things that uh, a regular person, not a news anchor, not a master orator, not a uh, just a regular business guy out there who's founding his business, what does he need to know about communication and public speaking? What are his tips? The first tip is that it all begins with you and self-awareness is the first tip. Honoré de Balzac was a French philosopher. He said, there is no greater impediment to getting on well with other people than being ill at ease with yourself. So number one, relationship with self, inner dialoguing. What's going on with me? 
I mean, right now, as you're listening to this, think about the kind of day you've had or the kind of week you've had. When you are feeling good and you're in the zone, it's so much easier to be tolerant. When your 401k is now your 201k, as in many cases right now, or the world at large seems to be in chaos, what's happening to the impact on you and how you relate to others? So don't underestimate self-self-awareness. The second thing is the ability to really tune into the other. You know, they're just the ability to put oneself aside in a conversation, to look at the world. And this is where the person you're interacting with comes from a different culture, background, personality style. You know, do we do that enough? And I'm sure that in your work, if people did that more, you'd probably have less work than you do now. If people communicated properly, I'd be out of a job (laughs) because because so many employment disputes arise out of a simple lack of proper communication. Oh, I I mean, uh, that's okay. We need that in a, okay, don't forget that to make that into a soundbite, right? There you go. Because that's a good one. I can put that in and I can give it to you as a quote and I can do a whole blog around that. That's excellent. Yeah. And it's true. It's absolutely true. So, so let's don't, I'm, I'm quoting you on that one. There you go. And then, The next part of communication, you know, understanding the value of mutually reciprocal relationships. There's nothing I'm saying that's novel. I call it a BLO, a blinding light of the obvious, is that, you know, we famously think we have to be go-getters, and we do, but equally important is, and I think John Maxwell said this, is to be a Mm go-giver, a go-giver. And, you know, it sounds obvious, but... People don't enter into relationships always as a Mm go-giver. And you can sense if there's a mutually reciprocal tone, attitude to that interaction or someone is merely transactional. Yeah. It's a fantastic book, by the way, The Go-Giver. Have you read the book? I haven't read the book, but that's so funny, The Go-Giver. I mean, it's a quote by John Maxwell. It's a a phenomenal book. book. Okay, I must get it. That's so good. I'll send it to to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So giving. Um, He also said, dig your well before it's empty. Maxwell, you know, the whole concept of don't wait, don't make 911 calls, reach out to people. On that subject, courage. So two people in my so-called network have recently had extraordinary career successes. So Tonya Cornelius worked with me at Turner. She then went to ESPN and I did several programs for her at ESPN. And she is now really high up at Disney in HR, doing incredible things. And I reached out to her recently just to say, Tonya, I'm you know, so proud of you. Your, your career has gone from strength to strength. And I would actually love to interview you. And I haven't yet heard back from her, and I'm sure that I haven't, mainly because she's inundated. But something I speak about a lot is what stops you reaching out to people is fear of rejection, right? What if she doesn't get back to me? How does it make me feel? And it's that reminder is she's not not getting back to me because she doesn't care about me, value me, think I'm important. Right now, it's just not a priority. So I say to all of you who reach out, even I, who at this point in my career I get a lot of people reaching out to me, but 
I still have to reach out to people and there's still an element of rejection. And going back to Clint Eastwood, he says he still gets rejected and it sucks, but it doesn't mean you can't survive it. So there's that element of relationships. Reach out to people in a gracious way. What's the worst that can happen? They don't get back to you, right? Which is not fabulous. It's just normal. And then we want to engage with people with a level of energy and enthusiasm. And that doesn't mean that we have to always be positive and always be rah, rah, but people are much more drawn to someone who appears to be in gratitude mode and not in victim mode. And I'm not saying don't be authentic and not be genuine, but it's very repelling when an individual is always having a difficult time and always in victim mode. So it's just to think about that. And, and what I've shared with you is the four things I, I share in the TEDx talk, which is fire, feel good about yourself, show genuine interest, relationships, but reach out even if it hurts, even if it's there's rejection. And then the E is to engage with a level of energy, excitement, and a level of enthusiasm. Because that's infectious. And it's interesting as you're talking about all these things, I'm reflecting back on the very first part of our conversation when you're talking about Nelson Mandela and uh, and all those things that his authenticity and 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 the the interaction you had with him it sounds like it 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 accentuated uh, all these kind of qualities in a leader that attracted uh, a whole nation to a person no. who then could transform a nation as a result it's unbelievable Well think about also his ability to forgive you know, he famously said to Clinton, Clinton went, how you've spent all these years in prison. How can you not forgive? And he said, because if I don't forgive, then I'm further imprisoning myself, you know. So many lessons from Mandela. So many, so many lessons. Yeah, unbelievable. So let me ask you, there, there's so much more we can unpack over here, but uh, we're getting to the end of our time. And um, I want to ask you, because obviously you've had an amazing life story yourself, and you and it's clear from the way that you've now, uh, the lessons that you bring forward uh, from uh, very much from your own life and from your own authenticity and from what you've gained along the way, uh, the way you put it, the, the wisdom of the journey is clearly how you're paying that forward in the work that you do now and helping other people communicate and learn communication. But if you were to turn back to yourself, and this is my final question, and say, Nadja, little Nadja, 31 years, 31 years old, <laughs> moving to the United States, or even before that, uh, in South Africa, you know, I've been there, I've had this great career. Uh, and this is what I would do today, been there, do this. What would you, uh, what would be your message to yourself of 10, 15, 20 years ago? Is relax. <laughs> Elvin Toffler said, the less you need something, the more power you have. Yeah. And it would be just, nothing is that important. And if we can just learn, we're all trying, we're all navigating. And yes, rejection sucks because I don't know anybody, however successful they are. And believe me, I coach some CEOs and top executives and they still don't like it when things don't go perfectly is just, it's okay. You know, there's so many universal truths. When I say universal truths, they've almost become sayings or cliches, but things, nothing is ever as great as it seems, but nothing is ever as bad as it seems. Mm -hmm. And just to put things in perspective and focus on the important stuff. I have these two amazing daughters. I have a 31-year-old and a 28-year-old daughter. My younger daughter is actually pregnant. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I'm very excited about that. So just focus on the important things. Josh, you know, as you do, I know you're a father of five, five, you know, 
sometimes so i think perspective yeah perspective it's beautiful so if any of the listeners want to communicate with you um what yes. is the best way to get in touch with you so my website is very simple because it is nadiaspeaks.com. So if you want to speak to Nadia, www.nadiaspeaks.com. So thank you so much yes, for joining us. Contact forms, um, et cetera. Unbelievable. So thank you for joining us and sharing of your wisdom. It's always, uh, there's at least one point in almost every podcast that I get the chills. Um, and uh, and very much so today because, uh, I, you know, the, just the guests that I bring on, the life stories are just so inspiring, the professional stories and what they have to pay forward. So I really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing of your wisdom uh, today with us. Thank you, Josh Joel. Thank you for listening to the Been There, Do This podcast. I'm your host, Josh Joel. If you'd like to reach out to me, check out www.joshjoel.com and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn. If you think this is as important as we do, please be sure to share this episode with your friends and leave us a great review wherever you listen to your podcasts. As always, we thank you for your support and look forward to seeing you next time.